0: Welcome to another inspirational message from London Live Church. You're listening to our Sermon of the Week. My first my first major lesson in life came about very early. In fact, it's, it's one of my earliest memories that I can clearly, clearly remember. And I might have told this story before. If you've heard me uh, tell this story before, I'm not sorry. I will tell it again. It's a story that that put me on the foundations on which my whole life, being, and and narrative is based. I was at least two and at most three years old. And at the time, my parents were both working full time. My dad was a pastor. My mom was a teacher. And so they, they had to take me to this wonderful place called a nursery. Now, what you need to know is that um, at the time we didn't have any family living close to us. Um, most of my mom's family was in the south of Serbia, we were living in the north of Serbia. My dad's family was in Macedonia, or North Macedonia to be politically correct. So, so the only choice really for me was to be in the nursery because my parents had to work. Now, now one thing you need to understand about uh, Serbia at the time, we're talking about the very early 90s is that we were in we, we were experiencing this thing called embargo anyone know what that is and also this thing called economic sanctions you're looking at me blank because you've probably lived your whole life in this country you don't know what an embargo and economic sanctions is i know at least two people in the room worth well, four maybe five who know what i'm talking about See, this was, this was during the wars that broke up what used to be called Yugoslavia, the country that used to be called Yugoslavia. And during those wars, we had these, these interesting new inventions. There was another one called inflation. Right? And when you have a mixture of embargo, economic sanctions, and inflation, you come in an interesting situation where sometimes you will go to the shop and they don't have the money to give you the change. So, so sometimes they will, they will offer you something product that's approximately the value of the change, right? Maybe a chocolate, maybe a chewing gum. Remember that? So, so this one fateful morning, I was with my dad and he was taking me to the nursery. He was driving. And on our way there, we had to stop at a shop. And as it happened, the uh, person working at the tills didn't have the, the money, to give back to my dad didn't have the change so they offered him something and my dad knowing me and with his great love that he had for me he got me the best confectionery product that that humans developed in in, in modern history and it's called geležeka. and for those of you who don't know what that is it translates to jelly rabbit or jelly bunny jelly bunny Jelly bunny is, the, I can't even explain it to you. And you will never be able to try it. It's discontinued. So those of us who are blessed to try that will take that to our graves. And the rest of you, well, you missed out. So he got me the best jelly bunny of them all, which was the lemon one. And he brought it back to the car, and he showed me what, what, he, what he got for me. And I saw the bunny with his bow tie and his sunglasses, pointy sunglasses, it was the, the, the genuine one because there were, there were knock-offs afterwards, knock-off jelly bunnies. But, but, but the real one, it was the real, the original, authentic jelly bunny. And he came back and he showed it to me and he said he will just put it here in, his, in the front pocket of his coat. This is where it will be and it will be waiting for me when he picks me up. That's what he told me. Needless to say, I insisted that he should give me the jelly bunny now before I go to the nursery. And he insisted that this is not a wise idea. It's best if the jelly bunny waits right here in the pocket. But I insisted and, and, and eventually my dad warned me. He said, this is not wise, but so be it. You can have your jelly bunny. So I took my jelly bunny with both hands and with great joy and enthusiasm and excitement, I walked into the nursery. And as soon as the teacher saw me, she was much bigger than me. She bent over, she said, ha, with equal joy and enthusiasm. Oh, Pablo, what did you bring us today? (laughs) I thought to myself, us? What do you mean, us? I didn't bring us anything. This is is mine. This is for me. And I probably said as much because I remember her explaining to me that this this is not acceptable. This is not how we do things around here. So we have to share everything. Whatever you bring needs to be shared with everyone, with all the children. Now, you have to understand... Like I said, this was, this was in the process where, where the country was coming out of, of some 45 years of, of communist rule and governing. And some of the, well, socialists really if you want to be technical, but some of these values that were instilled in society for a few generations, they, they were still there. People still lived according to those values. So these were the values that they taught us. If you bring something here, you need to share it with everyone. There's no such thing as my jelly bunny. It's our jelly bunny. So she took my jelly bunny. <laughs> she took it with her in the staff room. And then after lunch, I, I, I was devastated, needless to say. My, my whole, the whole day was, was, was just this blur of, of sadness and sorrow. And after lunch, she came out of the staff room carrying this big chopping board and an even bigger knife. And my jelly bunny. So she took the chopping board and the knife and the jelly bunny and then she did some counting and some cal- calculating. I don't remember uh, clearly but, but some, somewhere in my memory I have this number 18. I think someone might have told me this later. So she divided the jelly bunny in her head in 18 parts and then she started butchering that poor creature and she minced it so fine that when everyone received their bit, mine was about the size of my pinky nail. And I learned a a, a valuable, fundamental lesson that day. Well, a few of them, but not least of which is that you have to share. Everything you have is not really your own. You have to share. And then the second one, is that I need to listen to my parents, at least when it comes to matters related to jelly bunnies. But I felt, the feeling I took, the emotion I took, that I still carry to this day, is that it wasn't enough. I felt wronged because it wasn't enough. So the title for today is, How Much Is Enough?, In our gospel reading, we heard about a story where this this question comes up quite a few times. How much is enough? And it's an important story because it was was preserved in all four of the gospels. And we are told that Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee. He went to the other side and a large crowd followed him on account of the healings that he performed, the healing miracles. And Jesus climbed up the mountain and the, the people followed and then... He was with his disciples, and he looked up, and he saw the crowd, and he decided that these people need to eat. So he asked Philip, where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? And we are told that he said this in order to test him. Now, this is interesting, because in the other accounts, in the other Gospels, at least in the Gospel of Mark, the disciples are the one who come to Jesus first, and they come up with this idea that the people should be sent away so they can buy some food for themselves. But Jesus then challenged this by saying, No, 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 no. You will give them something to eat. But they still didn't get the message. So they still started thinking about... They were still stuck with this idea. They were fixated on this idea that they have to buy food. They were thinking about buying food. So they asked, What does that mean? Is that, does that mean that they have to spend 200 denarii worth of, of to, to buy bread? Enough for all these people? And a denarius was roughly the day's wage for a a, a laborer, physical, manual laborer. Let's call it the uh, Roman minimum wage. And if we were to maybe compare that to today's UK minimum wage, which is, last time I checked, about 891 and count that, multiply that by, let's say, eight hours in a shift, and then multiply that by about 200 working days, we're looking at just over 14,000 pounds. So they're asking Jesus, does that mean we need to buy 14,000 pounds worth of bread? And sure enough, in the Gospel of John, Philip thinks along those same lines because he immediately asks Jesus, well, he does the calculation in his head and he's like, "Well, well, that's six months' wages will not even be enough for everyone to get just a little bit. But Jesus was about to teach them a lesson about how much is enough. So here comes Andrew. And he's saying that, that there is this there's this boy here. And the boy has five loaves, five barley loaves, and two fish. But he immediately dismisses that this as not being enough. And I always felt, I don't know about you, but I always felt sorry for this boy. I always felt like he just brought his little lunchbox and and now it's been taken for him from him. I felt a little bit bad for him, but then, but then on, on, on second thought, think about this. This little boy could have been anywhere else in Galilee, doing anything else, but he decided he wants to be here following Jesus. So, so, so he could have been anywhere doing, doing whatever you know, the, the cool boys of Galilee do. I don't know, but he, he decided to be here following Jesus. He asked his mom to pack him the lunchbox because he is off. He's going to follow Jesus. That's what he will be doing for the day. So I believe that this, this boy he, he offered what he had willingly. He must have heard that there was some talk about food and feeding and buying and some astronomic numbers and amounts were being mentioned and so I like to believe that he came and he, offered, he found Andrew and he said look, this is what I have. Can you do something with that? Perhaps he went to the same nursery or similar nursery to the one I went to. But whatever the case may be Andrew is there with the boy and his little lunchbox. And Jesus then tells the disciples to tell the people to go and sit down. And other Gospels uh, specify that they were meant to sit down in groups. And some Gospels even specify how big the groups were meant to be. The- Jesus is here. He's teaching community organizing. He's, or- he's looking at the crowd and he's singing groups. So 5,000 people in all. And the original text says 5,000 men in all which other gospels emphasize even more to, to tell us that there were more people than 5,000. 5,000 was just the men. And Jesus then takes what was there, the five loaves and the two of fish and he gives thanks. First thing he does he gives thanks, which is another lesson. One about gratitude and thanksgiving. See somehow in some miraculous way jesus is trying to teach us that in some way when you give thanks for what you have it somehow seems to be enough and then jesus goes and he distributes the food and the fish the bread and the fish to the people seated on the grass and in other gospels we are told that he gives thanks and then he gives it to the disciples so they will be the one distributing the food and there is this emphasis on the idea that it wasn't so much the fact that Jesus fed the multitudes. He taught the disciples how to feed the multitudes. But John's agenda, you have to understand if you've, if you've paid attention to what John is doing in his gospel, John's agenda is to stress, to emphasize the fact that Jesus is divine, Jesus is other, he is not of this world. So, of course, John would have to have Jesus do this himself, but the principle, The principle is the same. Jesus uses what the disciples had at their disposal, and this is what he uses and gives thanks for. And with a little bit of gratitude, a little bit of community organizing, and a little bit of divine blessing, lo and behold, it was enough. But this is another important lesson that Jesus teaches the disciples, and that I think he's trying to teach us as well today. See, one one can say that that God doesn't really need us to do anything, right? And in a sense, this is not wrong. He doesn't. He's God. But, but, but when Jesus was on this earth, this is not what he showed us. This is not the kind of God that he revealed. You see, when Jesus was in the desert, being tempted for 40 days, this same temptation was presented to him. This this. Temptation that maybe he should turn the stones into bread. And in that way prove that he is the Son of God. The Son of God, funny enough, was one of the titles of the emperor. So the temptation was turn these stones into bread and prove that you are king. But Jesus refused and and he 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 resisted this temptation. He resisted proving that he is king by turning stones into bread, even though he could. And Jesus could have, he could have done the same here with the people on the mountain, sitting on this beautiful grass on this heavenly Galilean picnic. He could have shown to them that he is king, that he is boss, by doing everything himself. But what we see in Jesus is that God is not like that. God wants to work with us and through us. So Jesus' answer to the question of how much is enough is whatever you have and whatever you're willing to share five loaves and two fish fair enough that ended up being enough so that everyone was satisfied and there were leftovers now the people reacted to this miracle by deciding that they are going to make jesus king and by force and to understand their their motives we need to take a step back and maybe try and understand their situation, the situation that they were in. So here's a quick, quick, quick history lesson. In the year 14 AD, the Roman emperor Caesar Augustus, the first Roman emperor, died. And he was then succeeded by the emperor Tiberius, who also took the title Caesar and Augustus. And at that time in Galilee, Tiberius is over in Rome. But in Galilee, there was a client king, a puppet king, called Herod Antipas. He was one of the the sons of Herod the Great. And he was competing. He was called Herod the Tetrarch because he was part of the Tetrarchy, the four kingdoms that constituted the territory that used to be the territory of his father, Herod the Great. And he was competing with three other people for dominion and control over these territories. So when the new emperor was installed, Herod Antipas, he wanted to, to, to prove himself worthy, to, to make a name for himself in the eyes of the emperor. He wanted to be noticed by the new emperor Tiberius. And so he decided to erect a new city on the coast of the lake, the Sea of Galilee, called Tiberias in honor of Tiberius. Now, this fresh, newly built city, the primary function of this city was to regulate the fishing business, the fishing industry, around the Lake of Galilee. And, and to control the fishing industry in order to benefit the interests of the empire. But Herod Antipas, he did something else that was, that was significant as well. He introduced many significant infrastructural improvements, but all of them in order to benefit this one industry, the fishing industry. And all the fishing was now state-regulated for the benefit of the urban elites, both Roman and Greek, from those who came in after the conquering of the land, and also the Jewish elites that were close, that were connected to the Herodian family. They profited from the fishing industry in two ways. First, by selling leases to everyone fishing on the lake, and then secondly, by charging taxes on all fish products and also charging for for tolls for the transport of these fish products. All the fish that was being caught in the Sea of Galilee was being salted or made into fish sauce and exported all over the Roman Empire. And all these infrastructural and economic changes functioned to oppress and marginalize and impoverish the formerly self-sufficient fishing communities and families that lived around the Sea of Galilee. These leases, taxes, and tolls, they were expensive. And the fish upon which the local community depended upon, which was one of the main dietary staple, was being extracted in large amounts and exported elsewhere. Thus, fishermen were falling to the very bottom of an increasingly more complex hierarchy, economical hierarchy. And in addition, and in relation to these economic changes, there, were also, there was also a political response. I spoke to you before already about the um, boycotting of the Roman census that happened in the year 6 AD by a guy called Judas, who was also from Galilee. And how he oppressed All those who resisted his initiative to boycott the census, Him and his people oppressed everyone. They burnt their houses. They stole their cattle. And people saw him as a terrorist. Others saw him as a freedom fighter. And how this movement that he started later became known as the Zealots. And how how this community, this group of Zealots later led the revolt in 66 against the Roman Empire. That ended with the destruction of the land... And the destruction of the temple and at the time of jesus they had a significant following in galilee now again in addition to the economic and the political situation there was also a religious element people were waiting for a messiah there were, there were, there, were, there was a heightened sense that the messiah is about to come any minute now and the idea was that this messiah this anointed one this christ will lead the people into a liberation, and into a new age of political and religious autonomy for the people. This guy, this Messiah, was meant to be a king in the line of David and a prophet in the tradition of Moses. And in this particular instance, in this story, on this mountain, in addition to the economic and political and religious circumstances, it was also near the time of the Passover of the Jews. Now, the Passover was the biggest festival for the Jews. It was a time when they remembered the exodus. They, they remembered the liberation from the land of Egypt. How they were set free from captivity and slavery. This was a dangerous time. This was a time when, when the, Roman, the Roman governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, who lived on the coast he would come into Jerusalem and bring soldiers with him just to scare off and maybe warn any potential dissidents and some some estimates were that he brought anywhere between 1,000 and 3,000 soldiers into Jerusalem. And then they would have this, this, triumphal, uh, this triumphal entry into Jerusalem where they would showcase all their weapons and their might in order to scare off any potential dissidents who have now come to Jerusalem for the Passover. And Jesus steps into this particular very loaded situation and this is where he decides to feed the crowds and this is what the people were probably thinking this is what the people were probably thinking they're thinking this man this man knows how to organize us he he knows how to teach us that we need to share he seems to be able to miraculously multiply food so clearly he's the solution to all our economic struggles we will never again have to fish for Herod and his silly projects with him as our leader, we can shake off the shackles of both Herod and the empire. He is also, seems like he is the solution to all our political problems, because under his leadership, we would not have to work for any foreign oppressor ever again. Furthermore, there must, must have been thinking, uh, if this man can, can, can feed the multitudes in the way in which he just did, surely he, he is doing something very similar to the great prophet Elisha, who also fed a multitude with Nothing else but barley loaves. Again, and also he he seems to be in the line of the greatest of all prophets, of Moses, who also fed the multitudes when he led them out of Egypt. Through Moses, God fed the people with manna in the wilderness and they were fed and there were leftovers. So, So this man, he fits the description of the Messiah, of the prophet that is to come. And speaking of Moses, wait a second, it's going to be Passover in a few days. So what if, we, what if we took this new Moses as our leader and what if we had another Passover? If we marched, if we were to march into Jerusalem with 5,000 men and with this guy as a leader and with all the people that would join us along the way, potentially even the zealots and their sympathizers and then when we, when we storm into Jerusalem and with all the crowds already gathered there, Pilate and his armies, they don't stand a chance. So this must be done. He must be made king quickly and by force. But Jesus, he ran away from all that, and he retreated. He climbed higher up the mountain to be alone, and that's because he wanted to teach them a lesson, a lesson about how much is enough. Enough. He wanted to solve their economic and political problem, but not by a violent revolution, but by teaching them about the economy of God, the economy of God, the economia of God, the ecos of the nomos of God, the law of the house of God, the rule of the household of God, by which the principle by which is governed the kingdom of god jesus 's kingdom he told us is indeed not of this world but because it doesn't look it doesn't feel like the kingdoms of this world but it is very much a real kingdom and it has very much a real impact on this world and it can very much be felt and experienced in this world liberation according to Jesus comes from partaking in this alternative heavenly economy where whatever you have if you give thanks And if you bring it to God, and if you share it with others, God will bless it, and it will be enough. The kingdom of God is not a mindless mob rushing into a violent conflict, nor is it a series of alienated and estranged individuals. But it looks like an organized network of communities sharing their resources, much like the people on the mountain during that heavenly picnic in Galilee. So Jesus runs away from these this attempt attempted coronation, and he retreats alone in the mountain. But meanwhile, his disciples are waiting for him, and they are again asking themselves the question: How much is enough? How much waiting is enough? It's now evening, it's dark, Jesus is still not with them, and they're asking themselves, well, how much waiting is really enough? How many miracles and lessons are enough to reassure them and to bring them to trust and wait on Jesus? So they pondered on this question, and they came up with an answer, and they decided that the reassurance was not enough, and that the waiting was too much. So they got into their boat, and they started their journey across the lake over to Capernaum. But, as it happens in life, the sea was rough, and there was a strong wind, and they were struggling. And in the midst of that struggling, Jesus shows up. And what follows is equal parts comforting and terrifying, really. Jesus is walking on the water, as if to say, right, if, if you haven't had enough signs... And wonders and miracles and lessons to trust me by now how about this I am the master of the water right the sea and the wind obey me I am in control is that enough no all right so then Jesus speaks to them and he says it is I do not be afraid it's difficult not to be afraid when Jesus says it is I in the original, he says simply, I am. And it wasn't the first nor the last time that Jesus used this phrase, I am. It's also the language that God Himself used before the original Passover when He appeared to Moses in the burning bush. I am. Jesus is asking here the question, He's asking His disciples, How much is enough for you? So He's saying, I am the master of the elements, I am the Lord of the universe, I am the Messiah, the anointed, the Christ, I am the son of man, I am the son of God, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the gate, I am the good shepherd, I am the true vine, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the truth, the way and the life, before Abraham was, I am. I am who I am. I am that I am. I am. And if that wasn't enough, another miracle, the boat immediately reaches the other side of the lake. Hallelujah. Dear friends, how much is enough? Do we need to see spectacular signs and miracles and wonders in order to believe? Do we need to See the rules of physics bent and broken in order to bring ourselves to believe. Do we need to see visions and hear voices before we can trust? let us take it the other way. Do we need to find examples and proof in scripture for every single thing spelt out for us in black and white before we can trust? or do we need to do we need to be in agreement with each other about every single point before we can? Start working together. How much is enough? See, the disciples, they had an abundance of miracles. And they they even had the living Word of God in the flesh. Walking among them. Available to be touched, to be seen, to be heard. And it still wasn't enough. So how much is enough for us? And perhaps it's enough to maybe start with the lesson that Jesus gave about how much is enough. Perhaps it's it's enough to start with the economy of God, the law of the house of God, the rule of his kingdom. Perhaps it's enough to start with, with a simple lesson about sharing. Perhaps it's enough to start with a lesson in which we acknowledge that the heaven and the heaven of heavens belongs to the Lord your God and the earth with all that is in it. Or perhaps as the psalmist puts it, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. Or perhaps as Saint Basil the Great put it, did you not drop naked from the womb? Shall you not return naked to the earth? Where have the things you now possess come from? Now if you say they just spontaneously appeared then you're an atheist, not acknowledging the creator, not showing any gratitude towards the one who gave them. But if you say that they are from God, declare to us the reason why you receive them. Is God unjust? Who divided to us the things of this life unequally? Why then are you wealthy while the other man is poor? He who strips the clothes... Off of someone is to be called a thief how should we name him who is able to dress the naked and doesn't does he deserve some other name the bread that you possess belongs to the hungry the clothes that you store in boxes belongs to the naked the shoes rotting with you belong to the barefoot the money that you hide belongs to anyone in need. Perhaps it's enough to understand the simple lesson that Christ wants to work with us and through us. Yes, he can make stones become bread, but he can also make us share what we have. And sometimes getting us to share is the miracle. Yes, he can do it all by himself, but just as the Son does nothing apart from the Father, Jesus doesn't want to do anything apart from us. He wants us to be participants, sharers in his divine life, in his divine being. Jesus' own prayer says, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And if Christ wants to work through us and with us perhaps perhaps the simple lesson is that even if we can do something on our own we should do it together anyways and also when we do something great and amazing and people recognize it and people start getting these ideas to elevate us to give us power to to give us authority to mobilize us as tools or as weapons in some sort of human violent conflict of the kingdoms of this earth we should run away flee to the mountains if needs be renounce rebuke run away from this because Jesus's revolution is real and ongoing but never violent and oppressive Jesus's revolution is also always collective and never solitary jesus is risen and alive and we the people are his body and christ can only be encountered in community through other people and christ can only be served by serving the least of these his brethren And that's why when we come to christ we come together or not at all when we are fed we are fed together or not at all. When we are healed, we are healed together or not at all. And when we are saved, we are saved together or not at all. How much is enough? When it comes to jelly bunnies, if you could ask little Pavle, he would tell you, it's never enough. With what I know now and With what my parents knew then I can tell you that probably any amount is already too much but seriously though how much is enough how much food how much clothes how much wealth how much money how many resources how much time how much energy how much faith how much praise how much worship how much praying how much serving How much justice, how much mercy, how much forgiveness, how much love. My prayer today is that we may come to believe that whatever we have, whatever we've been entrusted with by God, whatever is at our disposal, if we bring it to God, If we give thanks, and if we're willing to share it, God will bless it, and it will be enough. Amen. This is the end of this broadcast. We hope you've been encouraged and inspired. For more information, please visit LondonLiveChurch.com.